How are we doing, church? Doing good? All right, this morning we're talking about sex. This is your last opportunity to get the kids out. If you want to take them uh, to a new gen, you can go through those doors. If you're in the sanctuary, the door's right behind you. Some new gen folks will help you get them checked in there. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Song of Solomon, chapter 4, as you're looking that up. Um, i got a couple of announcements. First of all, the, uh, the bulletin's different. It's their new format. It's two panels instead of three. And that means that the response card is now in the seat back in front of you. This is the best way for you to communicate with us. Um, you communicate your prayer request, how you want to get connected here at the Church of 1122. Also, if you want to give electronically, the information's on the back. So take this each and every week, um, and you can connect with us that way. You can also connect in the Connect Center at the end of the service. And then uh, at the end of the service, you can drop that, that response card in one of our giving boxes around here, and then we'll, we'll be in touch. So I uh, just didn't want you to meet, miss that. Also... Uh, uh, a week from today, we've got our big baptism celebration, all right? There'll be thousands of us out there, hundreds of people getting baptized. If you were there last year, it is just one of the most epic, phenomenal, God-sized events that you'll ever be a part of. So it's going to be great. Show up early, um, you know, come to Thursday night or come to 9 o'clock service, uh, or when we get done here, be dressed, ready just to go straight to the beach. We're going to Hannah Park. We're going to take over the whole place. There'll be thousands of us there. This is, for some of you old school Southern Baptists, this is like dinner on the grounds, but our grounds are the beach, okay? So bring a cooler, bring a tent, bring enough chicken for me, and uh, we will just, after the baptism service is over, we will all just kind of hang out and play together and get to know your church family. It's a great opportunity. But today at 1.30, after this service, uh, we have a baptism class, and so you can still get baptized next week. Because from the time we had our last baptism class until the baptism happens, we, we've, we'll have uh, hundreds of people surrender their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so if you've never been baptized as a believer, believer, we are pro-baptism. We would like for you to get baptized. So you can go to the 130 class, and they'll give you all the information there. Amen? All right. See you next week there. Now let's dig into Song of Solomon, Chapter 4. We are going to talk about the honeymoon. And uh, this morning... You remember, well, for weeks and weeks, we've been walking through this couple and how they met and dated and pursued one another, and then last week, they got married, and today is the honeymoon, and so we're going to talk about how to have great sex. Can you believe that our God wants you to have great sex? As a pastor, I want you to have great sex. Now, the thing about having great sex is that um, you've got to be married to have great sex, and some of you are going, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh, Well, you might have acrobatic sex, you might have sex often, you might have long sex, short sex, stranger sex, boyfriend sex, you might have that kind of sex, but it won't be great because Jesus redefines great in the New Testament when Jesus says you want to be great, you got to become a servant. And it's only in the context of covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. When you take all the chips of all of who you are and you put them in the table and you say, okay, I'm all yours, you're mine and I am yours, that it's in that context where you have great sex. And how good is our God that he is concerned about your sex life? You see, over the last, I don't know, five or ten years, I've heard lots of sermons on sex, but, but really just lots of versions of one sermon, and it was always flee sexual immorality, which is true, and I preached it just a few weeks ago. But don't you hope that the Bible says more than just run away from it? Because I don't know about you, but sex is a very important part of my life and my marriage. Okay, are you uncomfortable enough yet? Because it's going to get way worse. But God, our Heavenly Father, wants such a personal relationship with you that these kind of things are important and there are chapters in the Bible 
about how to have great sex. And I believe that the Christians in Jacksonville, the husbands and wives in Jacksonville, should be setting the standard on what great sex looks like. I read this awful statistic this week, that 20% of American marriages are sexless marriages. Oh, my goodness. We need to pray for those people, okay? They need to read their Bibles and do what the Bible says. So here we go. We are going to dig in and talk about your sex life if you're married. And again, if you're not married, um, just better take notes so that when you get married, you'll be able to not just be hearers of the word, but do what it says. Here we go. Song of Solomon chapter 4. They, they're married. They're, they're in the wedding chambers. They're in the bedroom. And he starts talking. Chapter 4, verse 1. He says, behold. Anytime the Bible says behold, it means listen up, baby. I'm about to tell you something important. And so he says, behold. You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Now, what you're going to notice, gentlemen, is that even though he has the green light, he is not in a hurry to get to the finish line. All he's going to do is he's going to continue to pursue his wife and take care of her heart and value her and nurture nurture this relationship. Even though he's got the go-ahead from preacher and God and his wife, he's still going to start, not by touching but he's going to start by talking. And I know you're like, do what? But you got to trust me, okay? It's going to pay off here in a minute. So in 1 Corinthians 13, when the Bible says that love is patient, that's not just for dating couples. That, that also is for you after you get married, that he is patient with her. And then he's going to start by complimenting her, and he starts with her eyes. He says, your eyes are doves behind your veil. So there they are. She's got her wedding cap on and her veil on and her wedding dress and all he can see is her eyes. And so he starts right there and he compliments her and he says, your eyes are doves. Now you remember when they were dating, he said the same thing. He said, you're, you are beautiful and your eyes are doves. And he said, you're like a dove in the clefts of the rock. And so come on out. This is a safe place. And I want to see your face and hear your voice. See, because she is about to put herself in the most vulnerable position that she has ever experienced. And he is saying to her, this is safe. You can trust me. The same dude that's been pursuing you and valuing you and taking care of your heart, like this is the same guy now, and we're going to take care of one another physically. But your heart is more important than what we're doing physically. And so he says, your eyes are doves behind your veil. And then what he's going to do is he's going to start from the top of her head And he's going to undress her, and he is going to describe what he's undressing as he takes her clothes off. I told you people, you should read your Bibles, all right? You're like, it's in there, it's in there, right? And he's going to, his intentions, I think, are to go to the, from head to toe, but he he gets, he never makes it past the middle, okay? Gets about to the equator, and then it's over. And so here's what he says. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats. Leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Now, let me help you out, okay? Especially you good old boys from Baglaka. Because I know later in the height of passion, you'll be like, baby, you got like a goat head. That's not what he's saying, all right? <laughs> so what's happened here is she's taken off her wedding cap and she's let her hair down, which is a super provocative move. Because a Jewish woman would never let her hair down. She would wear it in a bun on top of her head and then she would always have a head covering on. But now they're moving into the bedroom here and she's taken off her wedding cap and she's pulled the pin on the bun of her hair and did that little pert plus move and her hair is like on her shoulders now. And so he's saying, it's sort of like, you know, Israel's in a hill country. And so if if you're far away and a shepherd was grazing some goats down the side of a hill, it would look like, you know, these goats that are cascading down the hill with the, with the uh, sun shining on them would be, be a very 
beautiful picture. And so that's what he is complimenting. He's complimenting her hair and the fact that this is a bit of an invitation from her by letting her hair down. Then he goes on, verse 2, your teeth. Now, the reason that he can uh, compliment her teeth is because they're on their honeymoon. And she's granted because that's what you do on your honeymoon. Honeymoon means sweet months. And you do a lot of grinning and giggling and smiling. And so he says, your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing. And what he's saying is, baby, you have clean teeth and you've got good breath, okay? (laughs) Mouthwash is foreplay, all right? (laughs) Brush your teeth, ladies. And then he said, all of which bear twins. That means her teeth are straight and not one among them has lost its young. So she has straight teeth and she has all of her teeth, okay? So from this we know she's not from Gainesville, so there's that. (laughs) Verse 3, here we go. Now he's going to move on to her lips. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veils. Now the veil's coming off and her cheeks are all rosy white because she's blushing. Because she's smiling and she's grinning and she... and she's blushing. And notice how he is treating her. Again, we are three verses in. For some of you good old boys, it's over by now. <laughs> but what the Bible sets up as normative is to take your time that love is patient. That when you're a single, I said that, that your body is not an appetizer, it's dessert. That does not change when you get married. That he is tender with her. He's more concerned about taking care of her heart and speaking life into her, and complimenting her, than he is just getting right to it. And so we're in verse 3, and he has not made it below her chin yet. That he is spending time on her face, and in her eyes, and with who she is, before he gets into the rest of her body. And then he says, verse 4, Your neck is like the tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields. All of them shields of warriors. Okay, this doesn't mean she has like the neck of a linebacker, all right? What it means, <clears throat> it's uh, the Tower of David was the symbol of defense for the nation of Israel. And so when you would come up from Assyria to Israel, you would see this Tower of David. And it represented how strong and how mighty um, God's kingdom was. And so essentially what he is saying about her is that she, that she carries herself with confidence, Listen, wives, there's nothing more attractive than a Christian woman who has this humble confidence. And you remember what she thought about herself when they first met. Remember, she just thought she was a peasant, that she wasn't good enough for a king. She said things like, don't look at me because I've got a farmer's tan and I'm not very attractive. But he's saying the way you carry yourself with such humble confidence is so attractive to me. And so he's created this kind of, this kind of environment where this is who she is becoming. That she understands deep in her soul, and that's why she's beginning to conduct herself this way. She understands Psalm 139, 14, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that, that God's works are wonderful, and you're one of those works, and she knows that full well. This is the kind of life that her husband is speaking into her. And then he goes on to verse 5, some of our favorite verses. He says this. Now, now, again, look how long it's taken to get below the shoulders, okay? So, again, this is not very Southern Baptist. I know you learn head, shoulders, knees, toes, knees, toes, but all the good stuff's in the middle, all right? Here we go. He says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, that graze among the lilies. Now, what is he trying to say to her? Is he comparing her to a, you know, hairy woodland animal? No. He's talking about little baby deer. So, what do you think about when you think of little baby deer? 
you think, oh, wow, they're pretty and playful and perky, and you just want to pet them, right? That's what <laughs> you do. And that's what he's saying. <clears throat> hey, it's in the Bible, people. Read your Bibles, okay? I'm just trying to help you. <clears throat> but notice what he says, though. It, it, but you don't run up to a deer and put it in a headlock, okay? It's hitting a horn on your bicycle. That's not what it is. Because if you just try to run up to a deer and grab it, it'll run away from you. And so what he's saying is, in a, in a much more poetic way than I can, but he's saying, husbands, or this husband's going to treat his, he's going to treat his bride with tenderness and gentleness, and he's just going to graze among the lilies. He's not in a hurry here. You see, and God has just, just wired us differently. I mean, he's just wired us differently. So you don't put her in the headlock, and she's not just your, you know, a punching bag. And this is actually just a natural continuation of how he treated her when they were dating. He treated her with patience and tenderness and kindness and pursuit and value as a dating couple. And now that they're married, and again, he's got the green light, he continues to value her and pursue her and treat her with gentleness and patience. You see, folks, obviously, we're just wired different, right? I mean, men are microwaves and women are crockpots. That's just how it is. What does it take for a man to be ready to have sex? It don't matter. You could be doing your taxes, and your wife's like, you want to? You'd be like, oh, okay, I'll pay the penalty. Come on, what's up? <laughs> How long do you need? Uh, six seconds, be ready. Ding, here we go. Let's do it like a microwave. Just put it in the time, ready to roll. Heat up quick. Women, generally speaking, more like crock pots. A lot of ingredients, you know. Turn it on. Will it heat up? Oh, man. Cooking hot. But you got to get all the stuff in there and then wait. <laughs> but thank goodness, that's how God created us. God created us that way. The men will use, often use romance to get sex, and, and women will u- often use sex to get romance. Well, praise the Lord. That's why he put us together the way he did. Because if we all had the sex drive of your average male, then we wouldn't get anything done. I mean, there'd be people everywhere, but we'd still be living in caves just looking at the fire. You want to do it again? Okay. But if we had the sex drive of the average woman, there'd, you know, there'd be like four people on the whole earth just talking. Hey, what do you think about that? Okay, that's what would be going on. <clears throat> but this brother understands it's not about what he can get. It's how he can give of himself. And so he's tender with her and he's taking his time with her. Verse 6, he says, until the day breeze and the shadows flee, that's the morning time, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. I'm going I'm to take all night long, is what he's saying to his girl. Verse 7, this is a key text here. Pay attention to this, husbands. This will, this will change your sex life with your wife right here, if you can get this right. Verse 7, his wife is standing naked in front of him, and he says to her, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Husbands, this is your only response to your naked wife. This is the only thing you have to say to her. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You know what he's saying? You are perfect. Now, again, what does she think about herself? She said, don't stare at me. I'm not, I'm not pretty to look at. Look back in chapter 1. She said, I have a farmer stand. Other people have taken care of their vineyards. I've not taken care of my own vineyard. She doesn't find herself that attractive. Why? Because she's a girl and y'all always find wrong stuff with you. But guess what her husband says? No, no, you think whatever you want. But here's the truth. You are all together beautiful. There's not a misplaced part. You are perfect. That, that there's not a flaw in you. Listen to this, husbands. Your wife is your standard of beauty, period. 
We talked about this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> when Adam was created and God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make for you a helper. He didn't, it wasn't like multiple choice. It wasn't the bachelor in the Garden of Eden and he got to choose from all these different girls after he tried to make out with all of them and just pick, hey, I like you better and I'll lie to you and here's a rose and you're out. Sorry, go to hell. No, he didn't do it that way. <clears throat> God puts him to sleep and when he wakes up, he starts singing this R&B song, look in the text, and then he says, he names her woman. In Hebrew, that means mine. He was like, oh, perfect. Why? Because she was his standard of beauty. So you know how this husband can say about, her, about his wife that there's no flaw in you? Here's why. Is she perfect? Well, here's the thing. When she is his standard of beauty, guess what? She always looks like her. She always looks like her. And that's who he married. And so she always scores 100%. She's always 10 out of 10. She's an A plus every single time because there is no comparison because he's not comparing to anyone else. Listen, this is a major problem if you introduce porn into your relationship, whether it's before you met her or after you met her because what begins to happen is then she is no longer your standard of beauty. You've got these false images that are your standards and it will begin to erode the intimacy in your marriage. And so what you've got to be able to say is you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Listen, your spouse is the only legitimate source of romance for you, period. Not romance novels, not trashy women's magazines, not that dude you're flirting with at work, not pornography, not some girl on the side, nothing else. She is the only legitimate source of romance for you. And here's the thing. Here's why I say if you're not married, then you can't experience great sex because great sex is fueled by exclusivity. And if you're giving yourself out to other people, then guess what? Essentially, you're being selfish because it's about you and you're trying to get some instead of for the rest of your life, give yourself wholly and completely to somebody else. And so there's a level of great sex that you will just never be able to experience. And I'm not talking about technique or experience, okay? I mean, you know, it might be acrobatic. Congratulations. But there's something at the soul level that you are missing. Because the Bible says uh, in, in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, and it describes marital intimacy, it uses the word dode, which means a mingling of souls. A mingling of souls. And when you've got this kind of exclusivity, it's, that's the time where you can say there is no flaw in you. And husbands, I, let, me just, let me help you here, brothers. If your wife really felt this from you, and even if she heard this from you, I mean, brothers, some of, some of you, the first Bible verse you ever need to memorize is this one, and you need to quote it every week. And I promise, if you would quote it and say it more often, you'd have more opportunity to quote it and say it. Are you tracking with me? Okay. And so this is the only, this is your only legitimate response to your naked wife. Because then what's going to happen is now they're naked and they're about to get naked. Y'all know the difference? So where I'm from, naked just means you have no clothes. Like you're at the doctor's office. Naked means something's happening, all right? And that's what's going to go on here. And so now they shift gears into verse 8. Here's the natural response. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amanah, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. There's a lot here. Um, one of the things he's talking about, he mentions lots of different mountain peaks, and he just said, we're going to be here all night. Essentially, what he's saying is much like a mountain climber reaches multiple peaks throughout his journey, so are you and I. You guys know what that means. I don't have to explain that. 
<clears throat> but he's also, all the places that he mentions, like Le- the mountain of Lebanon and, and, the, and the den of leopards, these were dangerous places. And what he's saying is, hey, listen, you can come away from the dangerous place that is this world. And when we go into the bedroom together, when we have sex together, then this is a safe place for you to come. I'm going to take care of you. I know you feel vulnerable in here, but I'm not going to critique you, okay? I'm not going to abuse you. I am going to take care of you. This is a safe place. And what every time we have sex, this is not just a physical event that we are going to participate in a supernatural experience that partly reflects who we are as image bearers of God. You see, in the, in the triune God, there's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In a way that we can't understand, there are three distinct entities, and yet they, God is one God. And as a husband and a wife, the Bible says one plus one equals one. And the two become one flesh. That doesn't mean you're not separate people, but in a way that sort of reflects who God is and our Trinitarian God, that husband and wife come together and they're one flesh. It also, that sex provides um, a depth of knowledge that just reading somebody's e-harmony report doesn't provide for you. Like the Bible says, and Adam knew Eve and she bore a son. That's a level of knowledge that you can't get to without the mingling of souls. It's like the way... Sort of, the way you know Jesus, it's different than just learning theology and doctrine about Jesus. That you know him. And that you're known by him. And then, when you have sex with your wife, you get to participate in the created order of things. That you, got to, you get to um, reflect God's image of, of, of being like and made in his image. You get to participate in creation. I mean, one of the things that people told me and Gretchen when we got married is that when you have kids, it can really be a big pressure on your marriage. Our experience was we had kids and and our good marriage got better. And I think a part of it is because we understood our kids were such a gift of God. And so like this afternoon, we'll go home this afternoon, you know, we'll eat lunch and we'll hang out and and probably watch the Braves play baseball or something, and just kind of kids will run around and play. And at some point, I'll be sitting on the couch with my arm around Gretchen, and the, and the kids will just pile on the couch with us. We have, like, the huggiest family you've ever seen in, in your life. We'll all just kind of get on the couch hugging. And I'm telling you, it makes me, it just stirs something in my soul for Gretchen because I just think about, I look at Gretchen, and I think, I love you so much. There's more people now. <laughs> look. Here's tangible evidence of, because it's an overflow of our love for one another. God made more people. That's how he made you. Not because he was lonely, but out of God's overflow of his love for himself, here we are. And so a part of what he's saying is that when we go behind closed doors and and we have sex, it's a safe place. It's a safe place. You can trust me. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to value you. I'm not here to just take, but to give. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that it always has to be like, you know, sweet and soft and Kenny G music. I mean, you know, get kinky and crazy as you want to, all right? And in fact, after this talk, I'm just trying to save myself some email time. I'll get emails or Facebook messages that basically say, "Um, Pastor, I've been happily married for X number of years. Can we... And there's a fill in the blank there. And then, you know, well, I looked all through the Bible and I went to that, uh, I thought it was a Christian bookstore, Adam and Eve. It's not. And uh, so <laughs> what's legal and what's not legal? That's kind of the question I'll get. <clears throat> so I'm going to help you. I'm just trying to be real, people. All right. I'm praying for your sex life. So here's the answer. What, what's legal and 
That's actually, don't ask that question, legal. That's the first step. In 1 Corinthians 6, remember a few weeks ago, Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So one of the first questions is, is it legal? Like, what does God say about it, or what does our government say about it? So if you're, if you're 25, you want to date a 15-year-old, the answer is no, that's illegal, all right? <clears throat> but when you get in your bedroom, what's legal? Well, um, what is illegal, what's outside of the bounds always and forever is any other people, including pictures of other people. Those are real people, okay? So you never introduce any other people into one husband, one wife, one lifetime. Now, outside of that, the real question is, is it beneficial? And you and your spouse need to talk about it. And I know it's awkward, but you just talk about it. And then the key question here is when you begin to understand that it's not about you getting some, but it's about you giving of yourself to serve one another. I mean, if you want to break glasses in here, whatever you want to do, I mean, just, <laughs> then you, then really the, <clears throat> the key is, is that when it's over, that no one should feel degraded or devalued, but loved and served and cared for and nurtured. And so with that in mind, I mean, really, like put a pole in your bedroom, get a trapeze set, a little leather mask with a zipper mouth, whatever you're into, all right? If you want to dress up like Batman and Robin, help yourself out. Whatever you, you know, Wonder Woman and fuzzy handcuffs, just praise God, all right? I know some of your husbands are going, this is the greatest sermon I've ever heard in my whole life. Never felt so close to Christ. Didn't even know I was that much good of a Christian, but apparently I am. <laughs> the deal is this. You're not in there to take, but to give. Give. And so, typically it goes this way. Husbands, if your wife's like, ah, it's not, I'm not really into that, then guess what? You're not into that. Because you're supposed to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And that means you, you give up some, some wishes or wants or whatever. That's fine. The point is to talk about it. And to be more about serving the other person than trying to fulfill some fantasy that you had. And when you begin to do that, you begin to grow in intimacy. And he says this, verse 9, he says, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. Now, a few times he's going to call her my sister, my bride. He's not from Kentucky. What he's saying is <laughs> that, that we're in the faith family first. That first and foremost, she's a Christian. She loves Jesus, and I love Jesus. And because we both love Jesus, now we can love one another. And then he says, you've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart. He says it twice right there. With one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Listen to me, wives. This will be hard for you to understand, but it's true. Um, As physical as dudes are, as physical, as as much of an ogre as your husband is and tries to act like he wants to be, sex is a heart issue for him too. Like it's not even enough for him to just be serviced that he actually wants a mingling of the soul. And when he pursues you, even if it's a weak pursuit, you know, if it's a short pursuit or a hot pursuit or he didn't really plan it out well, he just saw you walk by and he's like, hey, nothing going on, it's Wednesday, let's go for this, okay? And you're like, seriously, I'm tired, you know, whatever. When he does pursue and he gets his hand slapped, it dings his heart a little bit. Because every man in here has got a question deep in his soul, do I have what it takes? And you were placed in his life to help answer that question, that you're the man. And so I'm not saying that you have to say yes every time he pursues you. But I'm just, you just got to know that when it's, it's a risky proposition, even for a husband to reach out for his wife. 
And after enough hand slaps, what will begin to happen is he'll go from reaching strong to kind of a T-Rex hand to, no, it's not worth the risk anymore. I'm not going to do it. And it's because it really is a heart issue for him. And I know you think he's tough, and, and he is, but, but the problem is it dings his heart. And so what submission is, you know, in Ephesians 5, we'll talk about this often, the Bible says, wives, submit to your own husband. That doesn't mean that he makes all the decisions. That doesn't mean that you have like a submissive personality. Submission is just an invitation to lead. And there are times that he pursues you, and what you need to do is, is invite him to lead by instructing him, hey, I know what you're trying to do here, and you're, kinda, you're not awesome at it, okay? So here are some ways for you to rightly pursue me that will help you get what you're trying to get, and then everybody here wins, and that's different than just the slap of the wrist. You're going to be like, how dare you? You know how late it is. I mean, that's just different. It's just different. Because rejection of his pursuit, I'm telling you, it'll hurt him at a heart level. Which leads to verse 10. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than, than any spice. You see, what's, what's happening here is, is Solomon is saying that he understands that sex, it's not gross and it's not a God, but it is a gift from the Almighty God to not only be enjoyed by married people, but it should also stir in us worship of the giver of every perfect gift. That one of the greatest gifts um, used in the Old Testament to celebrate God's goodness was wine. I know some of you, you know, Baptists, that freaks you out a little bit, but that's just what it is. Now, the problem is with people is that we can take a good gift from God that the enemy can twist that gift and we can begin to worship the created thing instead of the creator. And so God gives a good gift of wine and what is supposed to happen for those who love God is you drink wine and then it stirs in you not a worship of the wine, but a worship of the one that gave us the good gift of wine. And so what Solomon is saying is that sex is a gift like that the sex is a gift from God. And that when, when a husband and a wife that love one another have sex, it should stir in you worship. Now, I don't mean you should sing worship songs while you're doing it. That would be weird, you know. <laughs> your love is like a fire. No, don't do that. But when my wife and I are together, what it stirs in me, thank you, God, that you would love me enough that you would give me her. I mean, what an amazing woman you have given me. And even in this moment right now, we have ordered our lives in such a way, and you have blessed us so much that right now in this moment, we are giving ourselves to one another. And I know there's a lot of married couples out there right now, and they don't feel this way about each other. But we do praise you, God. You see, that's why if you don't know Jesus, there's a level of, of great sex that you'll never be able to experience. Because if not, then the sex will terminate on itself. You'll just think that it's physical and it's just about the sex itself. And that's why our society is so obsessed with technique right now. That's why you can't walk through um, Publix without looking at the fronts of all those magazines. And it's all just about the physical. It's all just about the technique. So every woman's magazine is like how to have great sex and, and 100 ways to please your man. And you're like, what? There's like three. I don't know what the other 97 things they're talking about. But it's not about technique. It's about a mingling of the souls. And it's a good gift from God. Do you realize what a good gift this is from God? You see, wives, listen. Here's why God gave you sex as a married couple. Because your husband at a deep soul level loves you. And he just doesn't have the vocabulary to try to explain it to you like what's going on in here. Because unless you're Shakespeare or Byron or Kelly or some of those guys that are just incredible poets. You know, what, 
They don't know what to say. They're like, oh, baby, you, you know, love you like a... They just can't even come up with it. So God has given us sex. And it's like hydraulics to your relationship. You know, you know what it takes to steer a 747? Just a couple of fingertips on the controls. And because of hydraulics, you can just turn the controls a little bit. And that, I don't know how many tons a 747 is, but it turns and hundreds of people change direction and everything goes in a different direction. And that's what sex is like between a husband and a wife that love one another. Like it's this, it's this soul level expression of love. It's a gift from God that should stir in us, thank you God for this gift that I can express to my spouse how much I love them. Verse 11, your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. All right, we went from, went from, from looking to touching. And so what kind of kiss is this? Honey and milk are under your tongue. What kind of kiss is that? Most people say a French kiss. France came about in like 843 A.D. at the Treaty of Verdun. This was written 1,800 years before this. A sloppy wet kiss is biblical, people. That's what that means. It says the fragrance of your garments is like fragrance of Lebanon. Verse 12, a garden locked up is my sister and my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. So all throughout Song of Solomon, their sexuality, their sex life is referred to as a garden. And um, the sexuality of a woman is referred to as a well for obvious anatomical reasons. And the sexuality of a man is referred to as a spring. And later on, he's going to say that she is a spring-fed well. You tracking? So they are, so she is a virgin when they get married. Because sex is for married people. So he says, a garden locked up is my sister, my bride. This is a private garden. This is not a public park. And so that's how God intended it to be. A garden locked up, my sister, my bride, a spring locked and a fountain sealed. Nobody else's fountain has come near her well is what he is saying. Verse 13. Your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with all choices fruits, henna and nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, and all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all choice spices. He says that their physical relationship is like a basket of fruit. You see, fruit, not only does it, it, it meets our needs and our wants. If you eat fruit, it is nutritious. It does something good for your body. But so does Broccoli. But he's not saying, baby, you, you, you know, our relationship is like broccoli. I mean, it's good for you, but I guess you got to do it. No. See, because not only is fruit nutritious, but it's also sweet to the taste and, taste and to the touch and to the eye. And he's saying, he's saying um, when we are together, it not only does it meet my needs, but also my wants. And so here they are. They're without clothes in front of one another. Verse 15. She says, a garden fountain, a well of living water, a flowing stream of Lebanon. The anatomical analogies here are undeniable. It means exactly what it says right there. And so, three times in the book so far, as, as the engine has been heated up and they've been headed in this direction. And they, they've never kissed yet and they haven't been naked together and all that stuff. But even in their dating relationship, as, the, as their hormones started flaring up, Three times he would say, do not arouse or awaken love, do not arouse or awaken love, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires or until the right time. And now is the right time. So again, he, three times he said, don't, don't arouse or awaken, don't arouse or awaken, don't arouse or awaken. Look at verse 16. You know what he says? Awake. Wake up, baby. It's time. Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. What is he saying? He's saying this. 
Come on, baby. In the Bible? In the Bible. Woo, I told you, if you're reading your Bibles, people. It's exactly what he's saying. They're having sex. They're getting it on. It's awesome. And he says, the way, oh, north wind is like a violent wind, and a south wind is a gentle breeze. So sometimes, you know, you rock me like a wagon wheel, and sometimes it's Kenny G soundtrack, but it's just variety, and it's all good. And then it says, blow upon my garden, let its spices flow, and then look what the woman says. Wives, pay attention to this. She says, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. You want to be a great lover, wives? It has nothing to do with whatever you thought. That was called a filter. Here's what it has to do with. She is responsive. That's what your husband wants more than anything else. She just wants you to be responsive. Like it's not offense, defense. It's not hide and seek. Like, oh, I guess you found me. Okay, go ahead. I'm in. No. That she is responsive. And not just physically, but responsive in all kind of arenas. Like, she's responsive to his pursuit. Listen, again, <clears throat> wives, even when your husband tries to pursue you, I, just to be an obedient wife is to be responsive to his pursuit. And if it's not that good of a, res, uh, of a pursuit, then you can help instruct him. I and mean, you really can help him just by talking and saying, hey, listen, I see you trying to pursue me there, and that is awesome. I love you for it. High five. Now, Here's what you're trying to do. Here's, here's how I respond the best. Here are some of the things that, that are important to me. Also, to respond physically. And here's the only, only you know, sex advice practically I'm going to give you. Is that, that means this. When your husband reaches out and he grabs you by the hand, then you grip back. You take that to the nth degree in the bedroom, and I promise you'll make him feel like the man. I promise. And then afterwards, yeah, you talk about it. I mean, you, you review. Hey, that was cool. It's almost like a football coach reviewing film. I'm not saying film it, you know, with like put it on the little whiteboard. Not that at all. I'm just saying, hey, let's run that play again. That play, that's not, that's not in the playbook anymore, okay? And you have those kinds of conversations so that you can be responsive. And then, and then this is huge, okay? Um, submission is an invitation to lead. It's an invitation to lead. So if you're a good New Testament Christian woman, that doesn't mean you just wait, wait, wait. There are times that you've got to invite him to lead. I mean, you've got to kind of come up with some signals and some things that invite him to pursue you. You know what my wife has to do for me? She loves when I tell this part. Is that could be, you know, just whatever. We're going to be in the garage working on something. She could just walk out there and go, hey. And I go, let's pursue, baby. I mean, that's all it takes. <laughs> That doesn't mean that I'm not leading, but she's inviting me to pursue. Or, you know what I love about technology? I love emoticons. You know what those are? Because there's a text that say, you should come home right now. That could mean, like, we need to talk, which never means we need to talk. It means she needs to talk and I need to listen, right? But, but then, you should come home right now with the little lips and a heart means something. It's an invitation to pursue. You see that? I mean, just recently, I get that text and I was like, dang, baby, I wish I could, but I'm in a meeting. She texts back, I thought you were the boss. <laughs> you know what I did? By God, I am the boss. Meeting adjourned. Go on, people. I'm going to the house. 
Why? Because I'm telling you, it was just this invitation. And then listen to this, girls, wives, you don't have to go to bed every night in that old t-shirt that you got from that team building exercise at your old work, okay? (laughs) And I know you're like, oh, but it's comfortable. Oh, God bless you. All right, good, great. But sometimes you need to come out and, and, and you need, you know, just kind of give them that signal. And fellas, you too, all right? Have ears to hear what your wife says. She says, hey, listen, when you come to bed smelling like two-cycle oil and putting hands on me, it just ain't. That's not doing what you think it's doing, Romeo, right? And then you can, you can res- be responsive to what, what he's doing. So she says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Chapter 5, verse 1, and he says this. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice and ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my, with my milk. And the two have become one. And he says, my, 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 oh my. Right? They have had sex and the two have become one. And then what happens next is somebody speaks up in the text. And they say this, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Some commentators say these are the friends talking. I hope not. That would be really weird if they're hanging out at the tent. (laughs) Go for it, bro. No, that's not what's happening. Most commentators think this is the voice of Almighty God speaking out loud one time and saying to this couple right after they have consummated the relationship, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Sex is a gift from God. God wants you to have a great sex life. And God gave us the gift of sex for enjoyment, for children, for oneness, for protection, for knowledge, for comfort, for all kinds of reasons. And God is for your sex life. He wants you and your wife to have a great God-honoring sex life. And here's how you do it. Here's the point. That the key to great sex is being a great servant of your spouse. The, The key to great sex, again, it has nothing to do with your flexibility or technique or any of those things. A great sex life is about being a great servant and serving one another. In fact, some of our terminology about, about sex just, just kind of reveals that we don't understand what we're talking about. When you talk about sex as getting some, then that's all about you as if the world revolves around you and you're not being a husband then. Because to be a husband means to love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so husbands, that means... That your wife, and listen, Christian husbands, you can, you can fall into this trap in a second, especially in a church that's not ashamed to talk about sex. And you can start memorizing verses that weren't written to you, and you can actually put yourself in a lot of harm here because you can make your wife feel like a sanctified prostitute that's just there to service you whenever you're ready because you're the king and you're the man, and she's supposed to submit to you. That's not what that means, brother. That you're supposed to love her like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And how did Jesus love us? He pursued us. He wasn't critical of us. He loved our heart. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He's tender with us. That we are better because we know him and that's how we are to love and pursue our wives. And that's what she wants from you. And the way wives that you you serve your husbands, again, um, in Ephesians 5.21, the Bible says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That a good marriage is one of mutual submission. That's also in the bedroom. I mean, husbands, you're submitting to her in the bedroom. And wives, you're submitting to him in the bedroom. That's mutual submission. And then it says, wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord. Essentially, what that means, again, is this, that he, every man in here, 
is created with this fundamental question deep in our soul, do we have what it takes? Most of us have never graduated emotionally from about the eighth grade. Girls, I just need you to know this. It's why we're trying to prove ourselves. It's why we, I mean, we try to do it in so many ways, whether it's play an instrument or play a sport or start a company or it doesn't matter. It's all this little, we're trying to prove ourselves. And then when you come along, girls, when you come along, everything changes, our chest bows up, and we're really trying to impress you. You know how I know, listen how silly this is. We have some legit successful men in charge of a lot in this room right now. I mean, even myself, I, you know, I'm a part of this amazing organization. We've got over 40 employees, multi-million dollar uh, budget. I, I'm responsible for making decisions that, that impact thousands of people. And yet, when I'm standing in the kitchen and my wife tries to open, open a pickle jar and she can't, she's like, can you open that for me? I'm like, Give me that thing. And I open it up. Something stirs in my soul. Like, dun, 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 dun. Did you see that? You're dang right I can't. If there's any other dragon you need me to slay, just holler. Am I lying, men? I mean, it doesn't matter what you've taken over or what company you started or how much money you made or whatever. There's that little moment where we're opening a pickle jar and you hand it back to her. And especially when they respond like, oh, Hercules, baby, look at you. You know, you're like, Now, if a pickle jar can do that for us, imagine what the bedroom does for your man. I'm telling you, it's one of the key spots where you live out Ephesians 5, 22, to make him feel like the man, to answer that question, baby. You have what it takes. And the more you do that, ladies, you know what tends to happen? The more he pursues And the more open he is to hear from you on how best to pursue you. And the more he wants to take care of your heart and love you like Christ loved the church. And gentlemen, the more you love her like Christ loved the church and you value her and you pursue her and you do those things, then the more often she will make you feel like the man in the bedroom. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7, he addresses this specifically in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, verses 3 and following. I want to touch on this just for a second because you can't bring these verses up in your home. The preacher can preach on them, but you can't memorize them and quote them, okay? And, and you'll see why here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, the Bible says, Husbands should give to his wife her conjugal rights. You know what that means, husbands? Even when you get home from work and you're tired and you're not in the mood and she just can't keep her hands off of you, then the Bible says that you should, out of obedience to Christ and service to your wife, that you should have sex with her, okay? I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I mean, there's so many days I can think about when I get home from work and, you know, Gretchen answers the door and something silky and she can't keep her hands off of me. I'm like, baby, you know, I thought we could just play with the kids and cuddle. And she quotes me this verse. Now, quite honestly, you don't buy it either. I don't know why this verse is in here. Uh, but just in case, husbands. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Guess what this means, wives? If you're not in the mood, it's kind of irrelevant. Now, not all the time, okay? You're not a slave, nothing like that at all. And I'm not, I'm not giving him an excuse to not pursue you and value you. But again, it's not about you. It's about... Mutual submission here. And again, husbands, you, can, you quote this verse, it's over, bro. It's over. If you quote this verse, don't, you can't come to this church anymore, okay? 
Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. If a feminist read that, her head would blow up. But, wow, I can't believe it. <laughs> but it's true. Because the next verse is true too. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but, but the wife does. Because you gave all of yourself to each other. You're not, it's not taking anymore. It's about giving all of who you are. Verse 5, do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another. There's no silver bullet, but I'll tell you this. You want to help divorce-proof your marriage? Do not deprive one another. Because when people love one another and love Jesus and understand the word, they are often and willfully and joyfully giving themselves to one another in the covenant of marriage. Do not deprive one another. Listen to this, especially wives, listen to this. Your husband is thirsty. You're the only clean drinking water in town. That's true. Now, if he goes to drink dirty water, that is not your fault. That is his responsibility. I am not giving him an excuse whatsoever. But this is still true. Your husband's thirsty, and you're the only clean drinking water in town. He says, do not deprive one another. <clears throat> Here's why. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So some of you go, well, tonight, maybe we should pray. That you may devote yourselves to prayer. But you remember what Jesus said about prayer? In Matthew 5, he says, when you pray, don't go on and on like the Pharisees do. Keep it short. And then say amen, and as soon as you say amen, but then come together again. All right, let's go back to the bedroom, okay? Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, this is not a silver bullet, but have you ever been grocery shopping when you're really hungry? You ever notice how you can't get off the cereal aisle? Like, ah, oh, these children's cereals just look so great to me. Oh, just sugar, sugar, sugar. But when you go right after a meal, you typically just get what's on your list. The same principle is true. Again, I am not making excuses for anybody that sinned in their marriage. But your spouse is the only legitimate source of romance for you. And so, that's a responsibility both ways. And so, the Bible says, do not deprive one another. Now, <clears throat> here's what's normal. What's normative in the Bible, people that love Jesus and that are healthy, whole people, in the context and covenant of marriage, in, in an effort to honor God, to love and serve one another, have lots of great sex. Not taking from, not getting some, but giving wholly of themselves to one another for the benefit of that person, for the joy that they will experience, and it's God honoring and to his glory. So how do, we, how do you close this service? You know, I kind of thought about that. Like, what do I do? Quote the book of James, be ye not merely hearers of the word and so deceive yourself, but go and do what it says. But I do want to give you homework, and it's not like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I just want to tell you what to talk about. Is that if you're married, here's your homework, all right? If you're not married, just take notes and, you know, bring the notes out when you get married. <clears throat> but here, here's your homework for husbands and wives. Today, I want you to ask each other this question. How can we improve our sex life? How can we improve our sex life? And listen, wives, when you ask the question and your husband starts talking, don't, don't correct him. Don't, don't tell him why he's wrong. And, and husbands, when your wife's talking, don't get defensive and don't tell her how she should feel. Well, you shouldn't feel that way. Come on, just listen. And ask that question, how can we improve our sex life? Because God wants you to have a great sex life. And I, as your pastor, I want you to have a great sex life. <clears throat> now listen, wives, your husbands are probably going to say something about frequency. They're probably going to, they're, they're, they're not going to have a long explanation here. Hey, how can we improve our sex life? One word, more. That's probably what they're going to say. And again, let me just encourage you. 
that you, that's, where, that's where you begin to have the dialogue. Where you say, hey, babe, I want you to have more too. Let me tell you how we get to more. Is that um, when, you, when you pursue me throughout the week, instead of just when it comes to mind. You know? And when you just talk, maybe a little love language here. Remember we talked about that book a few weeks ago? And you say, hey, listen, I'm a quality time girl. So when you've been playing golf all day and you just show up, and it just doesn't do it for me, but when we've spent some time together, whatever it is, it's your conversation. But you need to listen to him, and you need to understand that one of the key ways that you can be the wife that he needs will be in the bedroom. And then husbands, your wife is probably going to say something. And I got this from Gretchen. She helped, me, she helped me with this part. When you say, hey, babe, how can we improve our sex life? She's probably going to say something about being intentional. That she wants you to be intentional. And I don't even know if I can explain this well, but here's, here's what I think they'll mean. I think your wives want to feel like that you got turned on because you were pursuing her. Not you're pursuing her because you got turned on. And I hope you see the difference. That you've been pursuing her all week. You've been valuing her all week. You've been taking care of her heart all week. You've been helping her out all week because you love all of her, not just the garden part. And that feels different than if you're just sitting on the edge of your bed putting your shoes on and she's walking into the shower and you're like, oh. And then you begin to pursue as a result of being turned on. And sometimes, sometimes, Christian husbands, you can make your wife feel, we can make our wives feel like a means to an end instead of that bride that we are willing to give ourselves up for. Um, I got some staff folks together this week. Before, before the message, just to kind of talk to it, get a lot of perspectives and stuff. And, and somebody on staff just had a, she had a great comment. She said, it's almost like there's a lot of married people that just need to hit the reset button. Just need to hit the reset button. And I began to just kind of stew that over a little bit. And I know there's a lot of you in this room. And, and you think, oh, that's great. I'm glad you have a great sex life and a great marriage. But, man, I, I mean, I've got just a lot of issues going on here. And I want you to get, I, I want to give you the opportunity to hit the reset button because some of you have some sin that has crept into your marriage. And maybe it's some sin that you guys were both involved in together early on and you invited pornography and some things like that into your marriage and it's eroded your intimacy and now you're paying the price. Or maybe it's because um, you were not a garden locked up and you gave yourself away to lots of different people and some of those ghosts have made their way into your marriage. But also, there's some of you here, and the intimacy factor is hurting because you were sinned against. It wasn't your fault, but you were raped or molested or abused or sexually assaulted. And now you have a hard time seeing sex as a gift from God because your, your view of it has been twisted by the enemy. But whether you've been sinned against or it was your own sin, that there's, there's hope for you. And if it was your own sin, then you know what you need? You need repentance through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you've been sinned against, you know what you need? You need healing through the blood of Jesus Christ. So whether you need repentance or you need healing, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about the ministry of Jesus is actually what he did before he went into ministry. You see, before he went into full-time vocational rabbi ministry, before that, he was the son of a carpenter. And so you know what that means? That means that Jesus with his hands, was really good at taking broken things and making them whole. He was really good at taking old things and rebuilding them and making them new. 
So whether you've been sinned against, and that's affecting your sex life in your marriage, or, or it was your own sin that needs to be repented of, you know what Jesus can do? That Jesus can take broken things, and he can heal them, he can cleanse them, he can make them whole, and he can make them new, and that includes your marriage. No matter how broken you think it is, that includes your marriage. And so the thing that we all have in common is that we need Jesus. So the way we're going to close today is the band's going to come and sing. And I'm going to invite you to just receive that healing and that cleansing forgiveness that Jesus provides. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you would love us so much, that you would care about the most intimate parts of our whole life. God, I pray for the marriages in this place, God. Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for repentance. I pray for wholeness. I pray for God-honoring marriages. God, I pray for the sex lives of the married people in this room, that they would honor you, that they would honor you. God, I pray for such strong marriages at the church of 1122 that we would be a city on a hill. We would be a light to this dark world that we love so much called Jacksonville, God. That people would see marriages in this church and somehow see a reflection of the love of a heavenly father. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would sweep over this place and you would heal hearts. You would heal people that have been sinned against. That have been abused or raped or molested or assaulted. God, I pray that they would just know it was not their fault. But there are scars and there are damages that you can heal, God. And God, I pray for marriages that are on the ropes and on the rocks. Holy Spirit, would you mend these things together in Jesus' name? God, we know that all things are possible because I once was dead and now I'm alive. And if you can bring dead people to life, God, you can bring dead marriages to life. And so, God, I pray that you would move in this place. And we pray it in the good, strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hey, the way we're going to respond is the way we always respond. We sing together. We bring our tithes and offerings to the giving boxes around. If you filled out your response card, you can take them there. But I want you to know, too, the altars are open. Husbands, this is an awesome opportunity for you to lead. If you have a great marriage and a great sex life, you could take your wife by the hand and go to the altar and just give God praise and thanks for, for the good and perfect gift. For some of you that need to hit the reset button, this could be the moment where by the power of the Holy Spirit, the blood of Jesus... And the love of a heavenly father that you could hit you could hit the reset button on your marriage and have a God glorifying sex life in your marriage. Whatever you need to pray about, whether you're single or married or whatever it is, you can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. I hope you'll come.